If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up to Ephesians chapter 3? The last few weeks we've been uh, working our way through Ephesians, and this would uh, be week number six. We've discovered so far that we are chosen in God. He predestined us from before the foundation of the world, that He redeemed us, and so therefore we have a destiny in Him, and we also discover we have an inheritance in Him. So last week we learned about how God, through this work, has been taking down these walls of barrier. This morning I want to really challenge you to look at what your wealth is in Christ, because Paul begins to sum it up of who we actually are, what our identity is. Before we do that, I'm going to encourage you to pray with me. Would you take just a moment and bow your heads with me? Father, because we're very busy people, we have a propensity, even in the midst of worship, to be distracted. And certainly in the midst of looking at your word, we can be distracted. So God, we ask that you would reign supreme over this moment that there would be no distractions, nothing that would take us away from what you want to say to us. Father, we ask that you would help us to recognize that anything that we brought into this auditorium today can be laid at your feet and we can trust you with it. They're your burdens. They're your responsibilities. We just sang about that, so Father, help us to actually do that to release the things that we're carrying. That includes the things that we have to do later today, Father. All those things that might take us away from hearing from You, we ask that Your Spirit would be louder and more powerful and stronger in this auditorium and in our lives than what anything else might be. So, Father, speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week about a man who was uh, raised in a very, very wealthy home. He lived in the 1800s and early 1900s. And because his mother and father had doted on him and had given him so much, um, by the time he hit his adult years, he became a very demanding person. And got to the point where he wanted so much from his father that he was asking for more than what his father had intended to give him at that point in his life. So this young man, because he became so estranged from his family, he eventually struck out on his own, kind of like the prodigal son. Took off and disappeared for years. Eventually, he burned through all the resources that he had, and he found himself on the platform of the train station in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, begging for money. And day after day, he would make it his habit to show up at this train station, tapping people on the shoulder, asking them if they had a dime to spare or a quarter, anything that would get him through the day. One particular day, he's he's completely tattered in his clothing, beard is long, he's wearing just a totally shredded hat, and he walks up to a man and taps him on the shoulder and said, Mr., can you give me a coin? The man turns around and looks him in the face, and it's his father. As his father is incredibly wealthy. And the father does not recognize him because 18 years have gone by, and he's got this beard and shredded clothing. He doesn't look like his son. 
And his son says, Father, do you recognize me? It's me, your son. And his immediate response is, Oh, my son, I've been looking for you for 18 years. You come asking me for a dime? My entire fortune is yours. I've been looking to give it to you. And you're begging from me for a dime? Everything that I have is yours. That's a great parallel along what we're looking at this morning because the church is very guilty of going around the world and tapping people on the shoulder for a coin, asking for some meager subsistence, looking just to survive when we've got a heavenly Father who's got a massive fortune and we're the inheritors of that and He just wants to give it to us if we would but ask. I want you to see what kind of a fortune that we're talking about this morning. So go with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to take on all 22 verses this morning. That might make you go in your spirit, oh man, are we getting out of here like at 11.30? What's the deal with that? You know, part of what Paul does in Ephesians in the first 14 verses is kind of revisit what we looked at last week. So we're going to be glossing over a fair portion of that. But let's look first at how he states this when he, he reminds them of who they are. Verse number one, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given me to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So let's try and get into the mind of Paul. We learned in chapter one five weeks ago that he's in prison. He's in chains for the gospel. Now, I want you to notice what he said here very specifically. This reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. See, he's refusing to see himself as a victim of circumstances. Although he's arrested by the Jews for breaking Jewish law, so they believed, he doesn't see himself as a prisoner of the Jews. Although he's been arrested by Roman soldiers and imprisoned by Rome, he doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Although he's appealed to Caesar, he doesn't see himself as Caesar's prisoner. He's been bought with a price. Therefore, he sees himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And perspective is everything in a moment like this. Because when you're in chains, and you're doing time in prison, or you're on the hospital bed, or your checkbook is empty, or your spouse is left, perspective is everything. What is God doing in this moment, and how is God working? And Paul has proper perspective. How we respond to circumstances is way more important than the circumstances themselves. Because we feel good when our circumstances are good, but what about when circumstances go bad, then we think things are out of control. But Paul's perspective is, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he knew that not because of what he could see. Not because he could see the walls of the jail cell and the dungeon that he's been put into and the soldier that he's been chained up next to. He could say that because he knows that God works all things together for good for those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. That's what we're told according to Scripture. Now in verse 2 he said he's got this stewardship of God. This is a remarkable thing for him because he's the guy who used to persecute the church. He's the guy that threw people in prison. And then God radically transformed his life. And he says in verse 2, I've got this stewardship of God, and as a result of it, God made known to me a mystery. 
And what is mystery? Well, in the Bible, this is not something that's unsolvable. Mysterion, it's in your notes this morning. You won't see it up on the screen, but if you grabbed one of the bulletins when you came in, you'll see the Greek words off to the right. Mysterion is literally something that has previously been unknown, previously unrevealed. And Paul says, I've got this mystery, this thing that's previously been unknown, and it's been revealed to me. Go with me to verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Mysterion again. The mystery of Christ, verse 5, which in other generations has not, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. Now, we know that, right? We looked at that last week. We understand God's taken down these barrier walls. Well, these individuals knew this too. It's not news to them. Remember, Paul's been their pastor for three years. They're Gentiles who have been redeemed. They're in the church in Ephesus. They've also had Apollos as their pastor. And they've had Timothy. So it's not new news to them. For what possible purpose is he telling them this? And why are you holding it in your hands today? Why is it significant enough that God wanted us to know this? Well, let's start at the beginning. First of all, it was not given in clarity in previous generations, meaning Moses didn't know this mystery. David didn't know this mystery. King Solomon, the wisest man in all the earth, didn't know this mystery. Paul's telling us this is something that God has reserved until this moment in time, something He has not done before. Now, Paul's not saying those in the past were incapable. He's just saying they didn't have enough information. The the information was lacking. Now, understand this concept of Jews and Gentiles coming together was so unimaginable that individuals living prior to that time could not conceive it. Let's think of it this way. Try and envision here in the United States of America, let's say as of next month, there will no longer be liberals in the United States. There will no longer be conservatives in the United States. No longer Democrats, no longer Republicans they'll all come together as one unified political party. Okay? Got the imagery in your mind? Hard to imagine, right? Okay? Even more so for the Jews to have been told, you will be unified in one body under God with the Gentiles because they would say, spit Gentiles? No. Same way Republicans and Democrats tend to think of each other. Okay, if you can imagine that. So, but yet... It's a logical sequence of God's story. Because God says He won't reject anyone who comes to Him. Anyone who believes in Him and comes to Him, He will receive. So Paul comes to this perspective issue again, and he says, I was made a minister of this. So what's the word minister? Well, let let me show you up on the screen this word. You will get the Greek word diakonos. It's also in your notes. But literally, when you think of a minister in the the biblical sense, you think of someone who serves tables. You ever worked in a restaurant before? Anybody here? Been a waitress or a waiter? Okay, you can identify with that. When the customer calls for something, you respond immediately because you're there to serve them. 
Okay, that's the word diakonos. It's, it's someone who's there to serve a higher power. So Paul says, I've been made a minister. First, I was a prisoner. I recognize I'm a prisoner, but I've been made a minister of this. I'm waiting for the higher power, God, to tell me what to do. So go with me to verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for the age, which for the ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So in verse 9, when he says to bring to light, it's the word fotizo, and it's like these spotlights that sit behind the beams up there. The fotizo, whoo, they light up the stage. Paul says, I'm here to bring the spotlight onto this mystery so no longer will anyone be in the dark. I'm bringing the fotizo to light it up. What's he going to light up? This mystery which for ages has been hidden. And here's the mind-blowing thing. A mystery concealed in the mind of God so not even to be known to the angels. Not just hidden from man but hidden from heavenly created beings, as you're going to see in just a minute. So if it's been hidden from angelic intelligence and it's been hidden from mankind, let's ask ourselves this question. Why did God keep this secret about the church? Let me throw you a curveball. What do angels learn from you? What do angels learn about God from you? We're about to be told in verse 10, they learn something about God's wisdom. Verse 10 says this, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. So when you see the words rulers and authorities show up in Paul's writings, especially in the book of Ephesians, you're thinking principalities and powers like in chapter 6 where he talks about angels and demons warring together. So by the time we get to chapter 6, Paul is setting us up really, really well to understand what's going on among us right here on planet earth is not all there is. There's a battle taking place that we can't even see. Angels are present in this room, outside this room, and we can't see them. Fallen angels and holy angels who are doing battle. And Paul's telling us the manifold wisdom of God is being seen through us. Rulers and authorities are being informed. Rulers and authorities, like we looked at in chapter 1, the arche and the exousia, that's always associated with the angels. So let me ask you this question. Is it accurate to say that even the angels haven't fully seen all that there is to see of God? It is accurate to say that because the angels were not created omniscient. They're created beings. God is educating the angels through the church, both fallen angels and holy angels. They don't know everything that there is to know. As a matter of fact, this verse tells me that when we get to heaven one day, heaven's going to be an ongoing learning process. You're not going to arrive fully downloaded with all the information that you need. As a matter of fact, I can back that up by showing you 1 Peter 1.12. The angels are curious to learn. Look with me on the screen. These things have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which, into which the angels long to look. See, they don't know everything. They're longing to look. They don't understand this mystery of what God is doing in our lives. So he uses the word manifold wisdom. 
How do you picture that? Let's think of a field full of wildflowers. Summertime, it's June, flowers in bloom, and you see a field blanketed with wildflowers, multicolored. That's the way that the word manifold is used here. Multifaceted. Some of you are familiar with engines on cars. The manifold system that allows multi-chambers, the exhaust system, to be exhausted out of the car. That's manifold here. God has many different dimensions to him, so the angels watch salvation and they praise God for this multifaceted wisdom that God has. So let me speculate with you for just a minute. We're told that this manifold wisdom is something completely unseen before. The angels look at it and they marvel, and it's completely new to them, why did God keep it hidden for so long? Just Mark speculating, okay? Push back if you want to, preferably after the service. (laughs) My speculation is this. We're told that Lucifer, who fell and became Satan, is incredibly intelligent. The angels are created higher than man. Man was created just a little lower than the angels. So their intelligence and their wisdom means they're very familiar with God's Word. So when we look at God's Word and we see that Satan not only knew where Jesus would be born, that's why he tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, not only why Jesus would be born, but when he would be born, just like the wise men knew when to show up, Satan knew also. So if Satan knows all these things by looking at God's Word, and yet God didn't reveal it in the Old Testament, meaning God's wisest people on earth and the angels didn't know it, that means Satan didn't know it either. Might Satan have tried to do things to corrupt God's plan along the way if he knew what God's plans were? That's just Mark speculating. I'm thinking that's what's going on here. Let's move forward to verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Now, if the ultimate goal of creation and redemption is to display God, primarily his wisdom and his power and his magnificence, that means everything that God has ever done, Everything that God ever will do has one ultimate purpose, and that's to bring glory to himself. Let me back that up with Scripture. Colossians 1.16, you'll see this. All things have been created by him. We agree with that, right? And for him. Meaning everything that he's ever done has the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to him. So what we're learning here is that the church has become his instrument for doing this because the angels can praise God more fully because of what he's doing through us. And it causes a reverb effect. God causes salvation to be brought to mankind. The church grows and explodes. The angels watch it. They're mystified by it, but yet they praise God for his manifold wisdom. See, the angels see the power of God in creation. And they saw God's wrath at Sinai. And they saw the love of God at the cross. But they learn about the manifold wisdom through us. And that's an awesome responsibility. This is the way John MacArthur summed it up. He said, that you'll see his quote on the screen. They see, take, they see him taking Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, who together murdered the Messiah and were worthy only of hell, and making them by that very cross of murder one spiritual body in Jesus Christ. 
So what's been veiled from the highest of angels, Michael and Gabriel included, has now been announced through us and the implications are staggering. That's why Jesus said, hey, when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven have a party. You remember that verse? Look with me on the screen, Luke 15, 10. This is Jesus speaking. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pretty cool, huh? So they're having a party and they're watching what takes place. Do you think they're impressed with our worship? I asked Michael that this week. Do you think that when the angels are watching us at New Hope, they're going, wow, look at those worshipers. Are they going, man, is that the best you got? I don't know, it's just kind of a self-evaluation kind of popped in my head. So the church has become this lens through, through which the bright ones of heaven see God in a whole new way. Pretty cool. Now before we move on to verse 13, let me just camp on we have boldness and confident access. Verse 12 said that. You have boldness. You may not feel like it. He said you have boldness and confident access. That means you can enter into God's presence without any inhibitions whatsoever. This one's not going to be in your notes, but it's the word parousia. Uh, that's, that's the word boldness. This is what it means. It means freedom of speech. So think of someone in your life whom you have freedom of speech with, whom you can say to what you need to, hopefully in the right way. This is the way Paul is using this word here. You can come to God with freedom of speech because you have confident access to Him through Jesus. And you know what that leads to? Confidence before God and freedom of speech before God leads to confidence and boldness before man. Because if you're down good with God, you're definitely going to be bolder before mankind. Let's move on because this tells me that new hope is not an end to itself. This tells me we don't just exist for our own purposes, but for a much greater end to glorify God. So that's why Paul says this in verse 13. Therefore, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. See, he's got perspective, right? What an amazing attitude this guy has. He's in chains in prison, and yet he realizes I'm here because God's in control and He's working all things together for my good. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Oh, man. <laughs> you guys want to try and preach that one? That is so packed. Well, I know we could go a million different directions with it, but just understand this. Paul's getting back to what he started with. See, he took a 14-verse rabbit trail. He started with saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and then he launched off talking about Jews and Gentiles. Now he comes back and he said, for this reason, I proscuneo. 
He's kneeling before God, which is highly unusual for a Jewish man because Jewish Hebrew men, they stood when they prayed. Except another Hebrew came along and he fell on his face in the garden the night before he was going to be executed. In Scripture, you can read it yourself. It says in Luke, Jesus went to his face and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So Paul's really mimicking Jesus. He's doing what he saw his Jesus do. He's going to his knee. And how awkward of an experience would that be for the Roman guard who's chained to him? You've got the guy who's leading the charge for the Gentile church, who's chained to you, and you're watching him go to his knees and pleading for these people that are hundreds of miles away in another church. Do you think that had an impact on that Roman guard? We're told that Roman guards were chained to their prisoners because they didn't want their prisoners escaping. If it did, it meant their life, so they're chained right to them. So he says, I come before the Father. It's the word prose. Before is prose. It means face to face. Uh, In in imagery, he's, he's coming into this intimate relationship before God. And so he starts talking about all these resources. What I challenge you to do, if you get time this afternoon, while it's still fresh in your mind, go back over the first two chapters and note all the resources that Paul has mentioned that you have so far. See, when they wrote the Bible, they didn't write with chapter and verse definitions. It was all one letter. We broke it up into chapters and verses later when it was translated just to make it easier. But Paul didn't put those numbers in there. This is one continuous letter. And so when he starts talking about these glorious riches, he's talking about the fact that you were chosen in him, that you were predestined, that you were given forgiveness and redemption, and you've got this inheritance, this destiny, and now this mystery. And notice what he's not praying for. He's not saying, God, give these riches, but rather that he would grant us strength according to those riches. Because when you have that knowledge that you've been chosen and predestined and redeemed and you've got an inheritance, that strengthens you. So that's why Paul's writing this, because he wants us to live lives which correspond to this great wealth that we have. So you're not walking around in train stations saying, hey, mister, you got a dime? God's given you everything you need. You've got all this power. You've got all these resources. We're not a beggar on the platform. So he gets really practical here where he begins to end it up because he prays for strength in the inner man. Well, what is that? The inner man is not just your emotions. It's not just your intellect. It's the part of you that was saved, that's being re, that was reborn, that's being reformed. It's that part of you where God is doing His work, the inner portion. We're all decaying on the outside, right? We are. We're all decaying. We're growing older. Every single day, we all grow older. But in the new man, on the inside, we're growing stronger and richer and deeper because of what God's doing in us. That's where He's praying for the strength. The inner man is who you really are. This outer body is just a shell. So he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts in verse 17. Now you might look at that and say, wait, I thought Jesus was already in my heart. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you're looking at that saying, how can Paul be praying for Jesus to be in someone else's heart 
And I thought, this is the saints that he's writing to. We, we were told that in verse 1, right? To the saints in Ephesus. So he's writing to believers. Why is he saying, so that Christ may dwell in your heart? Well, first understand that the word that's used here, dwell, is not a stagnant word. This is a verb that's an action word, and it means ever-expanding, ever-increasing. But dwell has a very specific meaning. And I think I put it in your notes, but I want you to see it up on the screen. It's the word katakeo. It means to dwell or to inhabit a house. So think of it this way with me. Let's just imagine that this is a lazy boy recliner, okay? I know it takes some imagination, but... Let's say it's a lazy boy. It's in my house. I hit the recline. My feet go up. I want to see how long I can hold it. <laughs> Grab the remote. Begin watching TV. I'm catalking. I'm dwelling. There's nothing that's crowding me out or taking my attention away. It's not competing for space. So when Paul says that Christ may katokeo, he's not simply inside the house, but he's settled in as a member of the household. He's taken up residence there. And Jesus, this is where it becomes very confusing for a lot of believers. Jesus cannot be at home in our hearts. He cannot be katokeoing, really dwelling, taking up residence until our hearts are fully submitted to him. Because we've got these sin issues that continue to push against and crowd and they try and take up room. And that's why God says, I want you to push those things out of your life so I have total room to dwell in your heart. So what we're not talking about here, it's not the fact of Jesus being in us. That, that's secure. It's the moment of salvation. You profess faith in Christ. He's there. But what we're really talking about is the quality of the residence. That's why Jesus went on to say this in John 14, 23. You'll see it on the screen. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. This house, right? He's settling in. What does it hinge on? Keep my word. We're talking about sanctification, becoming more and more and more like Christ. So what Paul is praying for here is not unique to Ephesus. It's not unique to the people who are there. This is an issue that's shared by every believer on planet Earth. This, this need to have a deeper experience of Christ. So Paul, even in his chains, is aching that these people who are in this other really, really prosperous town in Ephesus, who are doing church, who had Paul as their pastor, and Timothy and Apollos, that they not just be content with being spectator Christians, no surface relationship, but that they're willing to go deeper in Christ. So he says that you being rooted and grounded, and he uses an architectural term there. Grounded is a, a phrase that I became familiar with. Um, a few years ago, I was serving in another church, and we had done a very large building campaign and had spent many millions of dollars to uh, erect this structure. Um, around the year 2000, 2001, when the foundations were being put in the ground, we had paid money up front for um, the foundations to be poured. We paid the concrete contractors, and, and yet they came back asking for more money. 
And I wasn't clear on what was going on. Well, what the architect informed us is that even though they had done testing of the site and soil bore samples where they they drilled down to test the quality of the soil, they discovered an area where they were going to put the foundations in that the soil was very unstable. And so the contractors had to bring in large pieces of equipment, vibrating equipment, to compact the ground. And so I, I remember saying to the architect, why are we spending all that money on them? I mean, the ground is firm. They're going down 48 inches. And he says, this very plain response, it's the most important part of the building, Mark. Most important part of the building is the foundation. If you don't go deep, you can't go high. And that's the truth of Scripture here when Paul uses this rooted and grounded. If you don't go deep into God's Word, you can't go high. It's not possible. So that's why he said, you being rooted and grounded in love because life experiences will test the depth of your foundation. And when those storms come blasting against you, they will reveal the strength of Christ within you. That's why he's saying, you got to be rooted and grounded deep in love, deep in understanding who Christ is. So we have to ask ourselves this question. I asked myself this question this week. Is it possible is it possible to understand something but not really make it your own? I'm thinking basketball, okay? That's what popped in my head when I asked myself that question. I'm, I'm watching different college games this week, and I realize I can read books about basketball. I have a terrible jump shot, by the way, okay? I can, I can, read, I can read books about a jump shot and how to perfect it. But until I really get out on the floor and work at it, I haven't seized it. So Paul's saying, I want you to be able to comprehend this in verse 18. So when he uses the word comprehend, it's the word katalambano. Look at the definition for katalambano. It says literally, to eagerly take this, to possess it, to apprehend it. You apprehend that basketball and begin shooting. Yeah, you're going to miss a few times. Eventually, as you seize it, you possess it. This is literally to grasp it and hold it as your own. That can only happen through experience. That can only happen by being bold, trusting God to allow you to maybe take the risk and begin talking to a coworker about the things of God and who Christ is. Maybe being bold enough to be baptized in front of hundreds of people. Maybe trusting God enough to say, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to try this. That's how you build this depth. You get into God's Word, you pray, you work through the power of the Holy Spirit, and allow Him to strengthen you. See, it can't happen only through books. It has to happen through experience. So that's why Paul sums it up in verse 20 this way. Now, and this is a great doxology, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now you might look at that and say, that's the climax of the whole letter and it's risen to a complete peak. But here's what it does. It rises to a peak, but it doesn't trail off. It doesn't trail off because he gets really practical here. He's talking about the abundance of God and his ability to work through you powerfully 
So there's no trailing off here. He says, according to the power in verse 20. If you don't mind circling in your Bible, circle according to the power because back in verse 16, he said that we would be strengthened with power. What's the power source? Where's it coming from? It's God's power, right? We don't have it in ourselves. That's God working through us. This is the kind of power we're going to need if we're going to walk and we're going to war in victory. Because he's building this case to Ephesians chapter 6, and he's talking about the spiritual warfare around us. If you're going to be part of that kind of warfare, you're going to need God's power. But the truth is, in the church today, many people have their power source interrupted. And this is how. They get involved in very worldly activity. Or there's a lot of unconfessed sin in their life. And it's very difficult for God to work through a person like that. And so a Christian can be robbed of their power and God can't work through them when they're so consumed with things of the world and sin has covered them so greatly they don't even confess it anymore. How can God dwell in that moment? How can he catokeo and take up residence? So Paul sums it up this way, that you've got to have God's power working through you. So here's an encouragement for you. If you are growing... If you're further along today than what you were a year ago at this time, you're further along in your walk, you're increasing in your knowledge, maybe you're serving more and you want to serve more. If you're doing those kind of things, you're becoming more like Christ, you are motivated to do these things that you're learning about here, then I'm telling you, you've got the power of God working in you right now, and you may not even know it. Without the power of God, you would not grow on your own. Without the power of Christ working in you to become more like him, you're not going to do it on your own because the things of the natural man don't chase after that. That's the evidence of God working in you. And while it's not flamboyant, it is miraculous. That's the evidence of God. It's evidence that you have his power. So don't take for granted that God is working in your midst and he's doing these things for you. So measure yourself. Am I further along today than what I was a year ago at this time. Because it's baby steps. It is baby steps along the way. It was for Paul. So we understand there's no situation in which God cannot use us provided we're submitted to him. Whether you're in chains in a Roman prison or laying in a hospital bed, whatever, you fill in the blank. There's no situation where God cannot use you provided that we're submitted to Him. Because God is able, right? Okay, class. God is able, right? Okay. If God is able, then we know He can do whatever He needs to through us. I want you to look at the progression of what's called the Pyramid of Ephesians. Many theologians have written about this. It's not new to me, but I want you to see it up on the screen. Here's this pyramid of progression about God's ability. He is able. He is able to do. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So there's no question that God is able, right, church? No question whatsoever. Far too many Christians, however, rarely see him carry out that kind of activity. 
because they fail to follow the pattern of enablement that God is the one bringing the power. Far too many Christians ever experience that kind of activity, either because of their worldly activities or because their sinful activities and unconfessed sin continue to crowd God out. And so they find themselves saying, man, I really want that kind of power, but they're not willing to do what it takes to get there. And so we find ourselves going around on the platform, tapping somebody on the shoulder saying, hey, you got a coin? And the father turns around and says, everything I've got is yours. You've got all these abundant riches. We are far too easily pleased. We're content just to scrounge around for crumbs when there's an invitation to a banquet waiting for us. So church, hear this. If you take nothing else with you when you leave today, remember this. When Christ has indwelt us, katakeo, and when the Holy Spirit has empowered us, and we really need to be in prayer for that. Paul was in prayer for that. Pray for the power of the Spirit to come upon you. And when God has filled us with all of His own fillness, then He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or even imagine. And I can imagine some pretty amazing things, but God says, even beyond that. Let me pray with you. Father, some of us would willingly confess this morning that we sit here kind of mystified that this is even possible. So we'll start right there, God, asking that you would reveal yourself this week to that individual. People this morning who need to be reminded of your presence in their life, and, and that would be enough for this week. God, we ask that you would do that in some way. Father, for those who are a little bit further along the trail and is still wondering when they're ever going to see that kind of power and that presence, God, I ask that you help them to look at the circumstances around them and not see those circumstances as being that which dictates their attitude. Father, I ask for the perspective of Paul. That even when we're in chains, we recognize it's for your glory. And that you will do things according to your purpose. According to what you believe will advance the kingdom. Even when it looks like it's hopeless. God, I ask for those who are even further down the trail than that. Those who are mature in you. That they would trust you to the degree that they would be bold enough for you to speak confidently in every situation. God, even if it causes us to end up being persecuted for you, give us that kind of courage. Father, I ask that through the power of your Spirit, you would help us to remember the things that we've heard from you this morning. Not because of me, but because of how your words spoke. We ask this in the mighty name of our soon-coming King. And all God's people said, Amen.